Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Employment Law Matters. We've reached our half century of episodes of this podcast. And thank you so much for everybody who's been listening in for the last nine months. We're approaching 10,000 regular listeners, which is an incredible number. And I'm incredibly grateful to everybody who supports this podcast and listens in. Today's episode is on getting investigations right. And rather than talking myself, I thought I'd ask a friend and a colleague of mine, Jeremy Scott joint to join us. Jeremy is a barrister at Outer Temple Chambers. He's new to the bar, but he worked for 10 years in the banking sector, uh, involved in a lot of regulatory work before that, and he ran investigations for two international banks. So he really knows what he's talking about. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. Jeremy, hello. Hi there, Daniel, and congratulations on getting to 50. Well, thank you so much. So there's a few things I want to ask you about of varying levels of difficulty and incredulity. But let's start with, I think, the most fundamental question. Are investigations actually that difficult? Well, the big dirty secret that investigators never want to admit is no. It's just they're really easy to get wrong. And that's the tricky bit. They're not difficult in the sense that They don't have to be some evil genius with a slouch hat and a pipe hanging around outside the building waiting to catch someone having a crafty cigarette when they shouldn't have done. They're mostly boring and tedious and demand an immense amount of fiddly pedantry, which, of course, is why barristers tend to be quite good at them. The thing is, as I said, when you get them wrong, the consequences are horrible. And that's why it's usually a good idea if you can, and if your organization is big enough, to have a couple of people who genuinely know what they're doing. What sort of characteristics does a good investigator possess? Aside from the pedantry, of course, as I mentioned, one of the critical things is actually to be a people person. Because the vital thing to consider, taking, for instance, a misconduct investigation, let's leave aside questions of Uh, gross, nasty criminality for a second. But say you've got a misconduct investigation. Say someone has accused someone else of doing something bad. At the barest minimum, you've got two people, both of whom are probably in one of the most stressful situations of their life. One, because they've stuck their hand up, which is a pretty horrible situation to be in. And one, because they've just been accused of something which they may or may not have done. Either way, these are two very vulnerable, very scared possibly quite angry people who may or may not, depending on their status in your organization, be able to spread that anger and fear and upset liberally around the place. So having an investigator who's a people person is really quite important because that's the person who's going to have to deal with these individuals and frankly, keep them from spinning off. There can be a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction amongst some businesses, amongst some HR professionals, that somebody's put in a grievance, somebody's up for a disciplinary, someone's up for absence management. We've got to have an investigation. Is that always right? Can an organization sometimes get away with not having an investigation? I think it's probably important to avoid the phrase, get away with. I think it's always important to have an investigation, but an investigation can mean anything from 10 minutes looking at emails to three months involving multiple people and possibly an external law firm. Investigation, all an investigation is, is the process of finding the facts as well as you can. 
But that process has to be tailored to the size of the organization, to the nature of the problem, and the urgency of the situation as well. So if by investigation we mean throw resources at it and tie everyone up for months, the answer is, oh, good Lord, no. If investigation, on the other hand, means find out what happened, then I think probably yes, because although legally speaking, one doesn't have to have an investigation before going into a disciplinary hearing, nonetheless, your average disciplinary hearing is going to do a good, a better and fairer and less risky job from the point of view of a possible tribunal further down the line if it has the facts at its fingertips. That's all an investigation is. Now, you raise a really interesting point, because one of my particular bugbears, Jeremy Scott Joint, is that I think that many organizations are too insistent on having a separate investigation and investigation stage from disciplinary stage. I think that in most cases, they can be rolled up and one person can do both quite adequately. I recognize the ACAS code says they should be done discreetly if possible, but the ACAS code is careful to say should, not must. It's describing best practice. I recognize that many collective agreements with unions, many of which were crafted in the 1970s and are relics from that era, say that the (laughs) investigation should be done by somebody separate. But in the real world, can the disciplinary officer carry out an investigation properly? I think it depends who the disciplinary officer is. The reason for that is that one of the things that massively complicates any investigation from the 10-minute kind to the six-month kind is conflicts of interest. If you've got an immediate line manager looking into a problem, that can work depending on the line manager. But let's just think, say we've got the two people, the complainant and the subject of the investigation. Are either of them the best employee? Are either of them the worst employee? Are either of them divisive? Are either of them the heart and soul of the team? Are they good? Are they bad? Do you like them? Do you loathe them? All of those are complicating factors with conflicts of interest that can lead to issues further down the line. So I completely agree with you. An investigation doesn't necessarily have to be a separate process done by a separate person. But the important thing is whoever's finding out the facts is sufficiently insulated that they're not themselves a risk factor further down the line. I know that's a council of perfection, and especially smaller organizations will find this challenging. But the critical question always to ask yourself is, if someone comes later on and I find myself sitting in a tribunal, giving evidence, being accused of not being sufficiently objective, can I defend it? If you can, great. If you can't, maybe ask someone else. Let's think about something else. What kind of risks are there if an investigation goes wrong? The obvious one, of course, is the one we've just mentioned. You end up sitting sweating at the witness table in a tribunal. Before you get there, as I said, all investigations, by their very nature, involve stressed, scared people. If you do it wrong, if you make any of those people feel belittled, ignored, lied to, actually, a good investigation never actually lies to someone being investigated. You always tell them the truth. You may not tell them all the truth, of course, but the kind of American cop show idea of you say, I've got CCTV of you going down that corridor when it's rubbish. Please, please, please never do that. So you've got people 
who may have their backs put up, who may get angry and scared, may take it out on others. You risk, if it's done badly, ruining the culture and the environment within your firm. You risk driving people out of your firm, potentially, if you treat them badly, and maybe they're good people. You risk, obviously, legal action. We've mentioned that. But fundamentally, the biggest problem with a poorly run organization is the amount of time and effort and attention that you are wasting. And the one thing that no organization can ever afford is wasted management attention. Let's play, Jeremy Scott Joint, Things That Go Wrong Ping Pong. So let's each say (laughs) something that we think goes wrong often in investigations. Do you want to go first? Okay. Fail to respect the confidentiality of all those involved. Not putting all the evidence to the employee. Writing an appallingly bad report at the end of it that is clearly biased in favour of the result you're looking for. By the way, I've done that once. What happened? You only ever do it once. We weren't sued, but it came very close. Writing a report that relies on the absence of independent corroboration to find that something didn't happen at all. That's a really good one. Clearly believing someone because they're important rather than because they're believable. Not following up and investigating an employee's response to something. Also a great one. Uh, This is a killer. And again, I've seen it happen. Luckily, I haven't done it myself, but it has ruined one thing. Forget that your employee can put in a data subject access request and gossip in email about why you think they're an idiot or possibly a crook. Jeremy, I think that wins it. But before we finish up, a quick question for you. What's generally considered to be the advantage or the disadvantage of getting in an independent investigator? The clear disadvantage, of course, is how much it costs. They're always horribly expensive. And I say this being an independent investigator. I love it when you hire me to do these things. But it isn't cheap and it is time consuming. However, where you're dealing with a particularly sensitive matter, particularly, say, something with regulatory sensitivities, if you're a pharmaceutical company or a financial services company or another area where you've got a regulator breathing down your neck and where someone high profile or senior is involved, then A, you want to be able to show to your regulator that you can do it right. And B, you want to make certain that this important probably quite well off, probably quite full of themselves person, has as little purchase for the tribunal case that they're probably going to launch into you as possible. And that's best done by insulating yourself from the investigation. There is also privilege, of course. And this may sound slightly strange coming from a lawyer, but that's, to my mind, a subsidiary question. The really important one is, if you think you're going to get sued, Get someone independent because that will avoid the conflict question altogether. In fact, I maintain a list of independent HR professionals who do investigations, not at uh, Magic Circle solicitors firms level of expenses, but on a much more approachable level of fees. And if you want to see that list, you can get it at bit.ly slash HR investigators bit.ly slash HR investigators. I'll pop that in the show notes. Jeremy, if somebody wants to pay more for an independent investigation, how do they get in touch with you? You can always email me at my Outer Temple email address, which is jsj at outertemple.com. 
I'm on Twitter at at JSJ159. I keep meaning to change it, but it's so nice and short. I don't want to lose a nice short Twitter handle. And I'm shamelessly prolific on there. And that was Jeremy Scott joint from Outer Temple Chambers. Huge thank you to him for joining me today. I do have a book on employee investigations. If you're interested in having a look at it, you can get it on Kindle via amazon.co.uk. It's called, surprisingly, Employee Investigations, and it's by, well, me. Have a look. Thank you very much for joining us, and I will be speaking to you again next week. Bye-bye. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.